They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they Good evening, boys and ghouls, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the modern day. I'm coming to you live in crystal clear spookasonic audio from our luxury studio in the broom closet of Mask Depot, America's haunted mask superstore. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Alex Kump. Hi, girl. Justice Hepburn. Hey. And Sabrina Gall. Hi. And our stalwart producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. Tonight we're taking a look at two more horror classics from 1932, both set in exotic locales. First, we're going to dig deep and try to sweep away the dust of time from The Mummy. Then we'll be keeping our eyes wide open and stumbling through White Zombie. How's it going, guys? Yeah, pretty yeah, good. Going pretty well. Yeah, I'm alive, so. That's good. Yeah. That's better than, ah, I didn't have anything to say. um so i I guess with with that intro out of the way uh, i did my spiel uh so yeah we're gonna be talking about the mummy and we're gonna be talking about white zombie but i did want to mention briefly some other uh noteworthy horror movies from 1932 that we're not going to be talking about at least not right now maybe sometime in the future we'll, we'll come back but we're not talking about them right now so um 1932 is a really big uh, year for horror movies. Uh, there's a lot of noteworthy ones that came out that year. Uh, probably the most notable one is Island of Lost Souls, which is the it's it's considered uh, the film adaptation of the Island of Doctor Moreau by H.G. Wells. It stars my main dude Charles Lawton as Doctor Moreau, and also uh, has Bela Lugosi in a minor part as the Speaker of the Law. I don't have a lot to say about that one. Uh, there was also The Old Dark House, which was uh, another James Whale uh, film. James Whale was the director of Frankenstein. In the future, he would direct Bride of Frankenstein as well. Uh, but he directed The Old Dark House, uh, which also included my main dude, Charles Lawton. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, sort of the noteworthy thing about that movie is that it's basically the plot of the Rocky Horror Show. Um, you know, it's like newlyweds get stranded in a creepy old mansion by the rain in Wales or something and they meet the weird family that lives there that threatens their lives. Less blowjobs, but, you know. What's uh, the point? Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, so in 1932, there was also Murders in the Rue Morgue, which I believe I mentioned an episode or two ago. Uh, and that was the project that Bela Lugosi and director Robert Flory got kicked down to after being removed from Frankenstein. And it's basically a remake of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari with a, an ape instead of a sleepwalker. Uh, and then the final noteworthy uh, movie I wanted to mention is called Dr. X, and that was the first uh, color horror film. It was filmed in a two-tone technicolor process, uh, so it's really strange to look at. Uh, but beyond that, it's not that noteworthy. It's got a Lionel Atwell and um, Faye Ray in it, uh, pre-King Kong Faye Ray. I guess sort of the, the amusing anecdote about Dr. X is that there was a an unrelated sequel called The Return of Dr. X, which starred Humphrey Bogart as the monster. Wait, um, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. He oh, was, shit. He was a, a blood-drinking killer 
uh, in that. The, he considered it one of the worst films of his career. And then amusingly, the original Dr. X was directed by Michael Curtis, who directed Casablanca. So uh, I'm wondering if that's how they got hooked up over, over Dr. X before Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've done that, uh, should we get into talking about the mummy? Yeah, sure. All right. So uh, since no one volunteered, I, I, I wrote out a plot summary to the mummy. Do so it. This is, uh, uh, this is uh, my mummy some mummery. <laughs> I'm, sh I'm shaking my head. <laughs> I'm glad somebody liked it. I don't know. <laughs> the film opens on a British archaeological dig in 1921. Having discovered the tomb of the mummy Imhotep, the archaeologists have turned their attention to the Scroll of Thoth. Disregarding the warnings of sober-minded Sir Wemple, occult expert Dr. Miller, and the ominous inscriptions regarding a curse, and having apparently never seen the evil dead, the junior <laughs> member of the expedition reads aloud from the Scroll of Thoth, bringing the ancient mummy to life and sending the unlucky archaeologist careening into madness. The mummy absconds with the Scroll of Thoth. Ten years later, in the present day of 1932, a new expedition led by Sir Wemple's son, Frank, is guided to the tomb of the Princess Anxanamen by a mysterious Egyptian named Ardeth Bey. When the princess's mummy is placed in the Cairo Museum, Ardeth Bey breaks in and attempts a ritual using the Scroll of Toth. For the mysterious befezed stranger is none other than the mummy Imhotep. But rather than resurrecting the 4,000-year-old princess, the ritual hypnotizes a young Anglo-Egyptian woman named Helen and draws her to the museum. Recovered by the young archaeologist Frank Wemple, the two fall for each other. But Imhotep draws Helen under his spell and reveals to her that she is the reincarnation of Anxanamen. In ancient Egypt, they were lovers, and he was mummified and buried alive for stealing the scroll of Thoth to bring her back from the dead. He now wants to kill and mummify her so the two can be together for eternity. Frank and Dr. Miller ineffectually try to rescue her. And Helen, with the memories of her soul's ancient life reawakened, prays to the goddess Isis to protect her. Uh, the ancient gods send a beam of light that destroys the scroll of Thoth, breaking the spell, keeping Imhotep alive, and crumbling the ancient mummy to dust. The end. So because in our first episode, I talked a little bit about Bela Lugosi's life, I want to talk a little bit about Boris Karloff because we'll be seeing him again in more movies. Uh, and he's one of the most famous stars of horror films. Uh, his real name was uh, Henry William Pratt. Uh, he was English. Uh, he had no um, exotic Russian background whatsoever to our knowledge. Uh, but he chose the name Boris Karloff um, basically to... Uh, elude um, the judgment of his family uh, because they were sort of the upper, upper middle class English twit family that he didn't think would approve of one of their scions going into acting. Um, and he moved to Canada and spent most of his life sort of in obscurity playing these, you know, minor sort of exotic roles or villain roles uh, until, of course, he had this huge breakout role in Frankenstein. Uh, and then in 32, he was also in The Old Dark House, which was, uh, like I said, the other James Whale film. And then uh, this movie, The Mummy, really solidified his role as a horror star, which he would continue to do uh, for the, you know, the remainder of his life. But unlike Bela Lugosi, who was completely typecast, uh, Boris Karloff had some success in other roles um, and outside cinema. Uh, he was in the original production of Arsenic and Old Lace 
which is why one of the characters uh, in the script <clears throat> uh, has had plastic surgery and now looks like Boris Karloff. <laughs> and uh, another, actually one of his famous non-horror roles is as the narrator in uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about his career as we go through this podcast and uh, his difficult relationship or, um, you know, professional relationship with Bela Lugosi and their parallel careers they had and differing amounts of success. Yeah, I did just want to sort of talk about that uh, a little bit Um, and also about the background of uh, the mummy. Uh, So obviously Universal had had two big successes in these uh new horror films with Dracula and Frankenstein and other studios were sort of starting to get the drift that they should start ripping it off too. Uh, And so Universal wanted to keep the ball rolling with their next movie, uh, which they eventually decide on uh, as the mummy. And in the early 20th century, Egyptomania was huge. Uh, Egyptian motifs were everywhere in art deco uh, and the contemporary art of the time, and it mostly been spurred by the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb by the Carter Expedition in 1922. Uh, and there had been sort of a, a renewed interest in Europe and uh, the United States throughout the 19th century in antiquities. Uh, you know, you had Lord Elgin uh, chipping off the marble statuary of the Parthenon, bringing it back to London. Uh, Heinrich Schliemann blowing up Troy with dynamite to prove some kind of point about jewels. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was really the um, that uh, the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 and uh, the sort of legend that the tomb had been cursed, that there was a curse <laughs> over it, that was the major inspiration for the film. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think of uh, The Mummy? Uh, I really it liked movie. it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, I, I I have a lot of a uh, lot of love for the uh, 1999 version of the Mummy, uh, which is of course <laughs> a di- a different movie entirely. Yeah, it, it, but it really struck the same sort of chord. I w- I'm really excited to watch this one again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's interesting because I mean obviously today the what was it 99 when the Brendan Fraser Mummy movie came out. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's about right. Um. Uh. That. I, I could be talking out my ass here, but I believe that was made by Universal, uh, and it is technically sort of a remake? It, isn't the mummy Imhotep in that? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, he wants to resurrect an Aksunamun. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same fucking plot, you know. So yeah. I, it, it is actually kind of a remake. <laughs> so this uh, film was directed by Carl Frund, or Freund, I'm not totally sure how to pronounce that, who, of course, was the cinematographer on Dracula. Uh, and there are a lot of similarities to Dracula, which maybe we'll talk about <laughs> later, oh, yeah. um, in what that is... it's sort of the same story. Uh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is definitely a more sort of um, ambitious film, I-, I think, in a way. It, um, or maybe just less subtle than Dracula. Um, there's a lot more sort of overt uh, directorial touches. And mm-hmm. also, it uses stock footage so that it actually appears to be set outside of a soundstage, even though, of course, that's just movie magic. And uh, outdoor shots in the uh, shot in the Mojave, I believe. Um, uh, yeah. Egypt. Uh, yeah, and uh, I guess in terms of, if we want to talk about direction briefly, probably uh, the a very interesting decision is the interior section, uh, the flashback 
to ancient Egypt, which aside from um, Imhotep's narration is uh, shot as a silent film. Yeah, even with a frame rate. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, shot a little bit faster. Oh, no kidding. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I I actually didn't notice that, but... um, I read it in a book. I really... (laughs) This is sort of a side note, but I really like the opening credits, which, again, if we're talking Dracula... Uh, its likeness with Dracula also uses the same theme from Swan Lake uh, mm-hmm. in the introductory credits. But I love the little pyramid models that they, they oh, spin yeah. around. <laughs> the makeup in this movie is fucking awesome. I was surprised he wasn't in like classic mummy attire for like any of it. Um, the So let me, let me talk a little bit about that. So the costume that they made for Bela Lugosi when he was dressed up as the mummy uh, he couldn't walk in it because there's so much cotton there. So that's why you never actually see any shots of him moving in it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, right? Also, his uh, face makeup for that, the prosthetics, took eight hours to apply every day. Oh, sweet Jesus. Damn. Yeah, yeah. The Jack Pierce was the makeup artist at Universal. He created the Frankenstein monster look. For Frankenstein, he made uh, the both mummy makeups, both the wrapped and the, uh, the Ardeth Bay incognito makeup. Uh, and also, uh, jumping ahead to White Zombie a little bit, he also uh, worked on uh, White Zombie. Um, but we'll talk about that later, I guess. I, I, I do really love the, um, the production design of this movie, speaking of the makeup. All the sets are so gorgeous. And I think this is the kind of movie that really would only work in black and white because if you saw those sets in color, and the props and stuff, they would look incredibly fucking tacky. Uh, but the fact yeah. that it's shot in black and white, they're, they're gorgeous. And uh, talking about, we were talking about the Karloff's makeup, which is excellent, uh, but the costumes he wear really wears really highlight sort of his physicality where he looks like, like the robe he wears and that tall fez, it, it highlights his height, which again, he actually wasn't all that tall, but he does still seem to loom over everyone. I don't know if he was wearing risers or not. And then that robe, it, it makes him look like, uh, you know, really emaciated, like, uh, you know, it just he's, he's got this sort of bony chest sticking out and these these strong sort of um, straight lines uh, on the robe. I don't know. It, I, I, yeah. I think it really works. No, it, it calls back the, the like mummy wrap thing that he had without yeah. being a mummy wrap. So it's like, oh, shit, that guy's a mummy. <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> Should we talk about some of the performances in this? Because I think uh, this is a better acted movie than uh, a bunch of them we've watched. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the show stealer is Karloff is in the monster role. And I think the notable thing about that is how understated it is. Mm. You know, he's like, he's practically whispering the whole movie. And, and Karloff had a lisp, uh, which you can hear sometimes. Mm. Um, did he really? He did, oh. yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, you can hear it in this movie a little bit, uh, but uh, you know, it, it's it's a very sort of he underplays it, and his physicality is really sort of deliberate and delicate, like as if that if he moved too fast, he would fucking break in half. Yeah, because um, <laughs> he's a mummy. You know, it's it's weird for me because like Boris Karloff, like his rep is like he's the dude who did Frankenstein. That's the thing he's best known for. But then mm. you watch this, and he's so different in essentially the same like monstery role, the the antagonist of the movie. It is just his physicality. Like in Frankenstein, he's all these like herky jerky movements. Yeah. And like this big awkward lumbering dude. And in this he's 
calm and like that those eerie little movements he does when he's like doing his uh killing people from afar thing yeah great mm -hmm. he's really really great uh and this is the first uh role he had in a horror movie where he had dialogue uh where he spoke uh because obviously as the monster he's a mute and then in the old dark house he also played a mute uh <laughs> so he, well you know he wasn't a monster in that he was just a guy but he was mute so this is his first chance to really you know to have that kind of vocal presence uh in that literally he speaks at all uh, but also he's got a real vocal presence i don't know once again to talk about carl frund and the similarities with dracula there's a lot of focus on eyes and the the monster's eyes and the hypnotic eyes uh which again similarity with white zombie uh, <laughs> You know, there's there's that fantastic and basically totally unnecessary shot they play once or twice of uh, Karloff's face, and then you know, uh, with his eyes completely in darkness, and then the light raises up just a little bit, and they just fucking glow, and mm -hmm. it's awesome. Love it. So good. Yeah, no, you can really appreciate in those shots like just how detailed and good the makeup work is on his face, and he just looks amazing. It's great. This movie's great. <laughs> Something I think is interesting about the production is that uh, Carl Freund and uh, Zita Johan, who uh, played the female lead, uh, hated each other. Really? <laughs> yeah. So apparently oh, yeah. Um, Carl Freund, maybe for a reason, maybe not for a reason, decided from before meeting her that uh, she was going to be very difficult to work with. So like yeah. a couple of weeks before filming started, he invited her over to dinner with his wife. And he was like, oh, so, you know, we're going to have to shoot a scene where uh, you're uh, topless. And, like, that's just going to be a scene in one of the, the old school flashbacks. And uh, she knew that he was going to be like, sh she knew that he expected her to be like, no, fuck you. So instead she was like, I'll do it if you can get it past the senses. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is an accurate, um, you know, sounding of her voice. <laughs> And so then during the whole production, apparently he was a huge asshole to her. There, he made her for two full days of filming. He did not allow her to sit down and made her stand against a wall so her dress wouldn't get creased. <laughs> and this is uh, something I found on IMDb, so I'm not quite sure how true it is. But uh, in a scene with lions, apparently uh, he would not let her in the cages with uh, that protected everyone from the lions so like him and the whole crew were like in these cages being like not near lions and she was just <laughs> had to hang out with lions that's uh that's pretty bizarre that's, that's yeah uh, it's ridiculous directors uh, in the 1930s did not give a single fuck <laughs> that's true mm. hard now i guess that's a segue into talking about uh our leading lady whose name yeah is yeah Oh, yeah, she was Zita so Yohan. good. And I loved how she was written. She was very much a, I'm going to do what I want, and you're not going to stop me unless I tell you you should stop me. And even then, that will stop nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because she's um, her not only, well, she, she has a, a very good performance, and her character is, I, I think, at, at least I think it's 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 a pretty well-written role, which is funny because sort of the romantic leading man is just <laughs> the same terribly underwritten character as he was in Dracula. Um, and so she's like just running circles around this guy. It's like, who, who the fuck is with this guy? You know? uh, yeah, but, it, uh, it, it feels like everyone else in the movie is insisting that, oh, they're so in love. Their love will save the day. And it, 
I never picked up on that for no. even a single second. <laughs> yeah. And she like, seemed like, did you have to rob a tomb to find a girl? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. And and doesn't she like have this line that she's got to prove her love to him or something? And it's just. Yeah, which doesn't have a lot to do with like actually how the plot is resolved. No, no, <laughs> no not um, at all. Nothing. Which, and I mentioned this in the summary is that the, the sort of um, romantic lead and wise mentor archetypes basically go and try and rescue her and they just don't do anything. <laughs> Yeah, I would say uh, this movie is almost sort of proto-feminist in a certain way. Because, yeah. like, the female lead saves herself through the divine power of the goddess. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're That's right. That's pretty cool. Well, no, it was through her love for her man, which <laughs> Edward <laughs> Van Sloan just sort of adds at the end, like, <laughs> yes, none of this was feminist. <laughs> <laughs> just let me believe what I need to believe, okay? Speaking of the goddess, um, I think it's interesting that in Dracula, the cross repels Dracula. But in this, uh, you know, the, the characters are protected by a symbol of Isis. So um, it's like, I, again, I, I sort of doubt this was intentional. But for, you know, basically a set of movies that are very invested in Christian morality, it just like all the Christian stuff is just out the window. It's like, yeah, yeah, Isis is real. Uh, she has powers. She has magic. Yeah, she has powers. Um, Isis is real. Egyptian ancient words have power. Reincarnation is yeah. a thing that magic just happens. Is real. Um, yeah, Egyptians know it. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is sort of interesting. I don't know. Apparently, uh, Zita Johan also very much believed in the occult and reincarnation and all that. So she was very well placed in this movie. Yeah, and, and that, that doesn't surprise me because um, reincarnation was a, from like the late 19th century, uh, it was a, a, a big, it was a matter of a huge public interest. Uh, like it was a, actually a sort of a fad uh, belief in reincarnation and uh, like spiritism and things like that uh, were just very popular sort of in the late 19th mm -hmm. century or into the early 20th century. So that's another thing that's movies sort of drawing on that we don't, have a lot of frame of reference about now yeah. just because those beliefs aren't as common anymore. Yeah, it's like uh, Doyle and his uh, belief in fairies. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so David Manners and Edward Van Sloan are back from Dracula playing the exact <laughs> same roles. Uh, David Manners as the extremely lame fiance and <laughs> Edward Van Sloan mm -hmm. as the wise crackpot. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, like I said, they they fulfill an interesting role in this plot, which is um, nothing. Uh, <laughs> but they're in it. So. They're awfully there. Uh, they're actually, but I did want to say that um, both of them, both of their acting has improved mm. since Dracula. Like it's much more naturalistic. It's much more in the vein of what we'd call modern cinema, rather than that weird stilted theatricality of Dracula. Uh, but you know, people were were still like training for talkies at this time. You know, they didn't, they didn't have, they hadn't figured this stuff out yet. Uh, speaking of uh, performances, before we get to Noble Johnson, uh, I want to mention Bramwell Fletcher, who plays the guy who goes insane uh, at the beginning. Mm. Uh, what do we think of that? She was pretty. There's no Dwight Fry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would say that um, for a performance by a bit character, in a film of this time, I, I think he does pretty well. 
Uh, it's an interesting choice that he's, you know, he laughs. He says, what happened? Where's the mummy? He says, he went for a little walk. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of an interesting choice in the script. And, you know, it's like, ah, I buy it. There's a couple of those, like, unintentionally campy moments, um, especially when Boris Karloff is choking the guard and the guy comes in and he just kind of looks up and he's like, Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, when when he uh, when when he's hiding in the museum and he's got the the oil lamp, and then the guard walks in, sees the light, he's walking over, and then he just puts <laughs> out the lamp and he just hides there, like the guy's not gonna find him. Uh, let's talk about the Nubian. So obviously, Noble Johnson is the actor who plays uh, the Nubian, and he does appear to be in uh, blackface, which is interesting because Noble Johnson is African American. So I don't know. What do you make of that? So um, I had read somewhere that uh, they had tried to uh, make a correlation between uh, him being from a different part of Africa and how he reacted to seeing someone, uh, something, something, something racial make up something uh, that was scientifically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it sounds, uh, like from my research, like it was a uh, deliberate... Uh, choice rather than just sort of a weird, completely weird racist thing. Uh, 1932, folks. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> this movie's not exactly good historiography. Uh, no, no, certainly not. But uh, I mean, that's that's certainly worth mentioning in terms of uh, how this movie depicts the other or, or others cultures outside of uh, Europe. There's obviously a, a, a strain of Orientalism that runs through the whole thing. Uh, as almost anything um, from this time period about uh, the Middle East, you know, has. I think it's interesting that as far as the movie is concerned, with the exception of Helen, who is half Egyptian, Egyptians are mostly not in this movie, (laughs) Um, you know, except for some, you know, a a guy driving a car or uh, excavators or something. Hey, Um, just like black people and white zombie. uh, Yes, (laughs) yeah, another similarity to that movie. (laughs) It's almost like it's the it, much like with White Zombie, the movie just sort of elides any kind of um, actual grappling with this sort of thing. Uh, and in terms of the context of the film, in 1932, Egypt was independent, but it was still basically uh, politically dominated by uh, the United Kingdom. And um, well, there's that uh, that little imperialist bit where. Uh where Frank is very, very angry that they can't take all their Egyptian artifacts back to the British Museum. (laughs) It's not fair that they keep it in the museum in Cairo. (laughs) I forget what what, uh, Edward Van Sloan says in response, but he's just like, eh, what are you going to do? And it's like, no, no, it's their shit. (laughs) He does say, you know, we were here for science, not to loot. Yeah. All right. I think it's interesting, and this may be totally unrelated. The introductory scene with the first excavation is set in 1921. Uh, the Carter expedition that discovered Tutankhamun's tomb was in 1922. So I guess the question is, well, why put it in 1921? Uh, and the answer is, well, uh, you know, the answer could be uh, maybe they got the year wrong, you know, but... <laughs> Uh, 1920 back then. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, 1921 um, was the year of Egypt's independence. So I don't know if huh. there's anything to make of that. But I think that one thing that's that's certainly true of this film and 
is true also of Dracula and Frankenstein uh, is that it says something interesting about the 1930s as a time uh, because what you see in all these movies is the intersection of modernity with sort of the old world, uh, you know, the uh, science versus superstition. And I think that's very typical of a time of the 1930s as a time uh, because it sort of was a period of transformation from the old world to the modern world. I mean, science was making huge inroads in terms of advancement of human knowledge in this time. And for people who were living through it, it probably seemed like the world was speeding up in a way that they hadn't experienced before. Uh, the world had been politically through a lot of political upheaval during the First World War. But uh, in terms of, you know, our knowledge of history and science and the universe and humans place in it was advancing at, at a, a huge rate. And so it was sort of this world, that interwar period, uh, sort of at the threshold of modernity. And I think that that's something that all those movies are basically grappling with. Very insightful. Thanks. So let's talk about the plot for a second. Okay. It's basically mm -hmm. Dracula. Yeah. It's down to the same goddamn beats. <laughs> the girl's in the house. Uh, she's not feeling well. Dracula shows up. Oh, wait. I mean the mummy shows up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of similarities. Same from the production level all the way down to the cast, to the music choices. The um, plot's so nice, they did it twice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and man, no, and and then like hearing you say that, it makes me so so upset because like I want to be able to refute this, but I there's there is no way I can. <laughs> I mean, even like little things like uh, when Edward Van Sloan catches Dracula with the mirror, and mm -hmm. in uh, a scene that is just like that in the Mummy, Edward Van Sloan and the other guy, the you know the father, the elder scientist, mm -hmm. uh, catch Ardeth Bay Imhotep with like the scroll they've got. Yeah, yeah. I would say that the the major difference between this movie and Dracula is the romantic element mm -hmm. in the mummy, where the mummy has a motivation beyond I'm an evil monster who eats people. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because I don't know, I sort of wanted him to win. Yeah, no, I, I love them. I love mummy characters like that. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I mean, when he says, uh, you know, no man has suffered as I have for you, you're like, well, you're not wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I guess another similarity this movie has with White Zombie is that the plot is mostly about, um, if you're talking about proto-feminist stuff in this movie, uh, the plot is about a, uh, a male character feeling entitled to uh, romantic possession of a uh, main female character. Uh, and ultimately being refuted. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like, no, you're not. Um, but I mean, there, if I was thinking of like a thematic takeaway from this movie, it's that um, no matter how much it feels like your suffering should mean something, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Lesson we could all learn. Yeah, uh, life is full of um, suffering, and it's completely pointless. Well, thanks, Gary. Well, yeah. Yay! <laughs> all oh, right, that's the nihilist podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, definitely uh, Imhotep is a, a much more charismatic character than whatever fucking boob David Manners is playing in this. Absolutely. It's really interesting to see the see the scenes between um, our mummy and our leading lady. They're, they're just so entranced by each other. And it's uh, and they're yeah. the like 
the effect on the the other actors is very cool. Is they almost seem uncom they seem uncomfortable by how intense the, this these um, these interactions are. Well, I think it's the first movie we've watched in this era where the where two characters have had actual like chemistry with each other. So it's like <laughs> crazy. Absolutely. Talk about a showmance. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not even that like they seem like like they're in love. It just seems like there there is something there that you can't put your finger on, and I, I like that a lot. Also, I had to laugh when uh, Helen describes when she realizes that her dog has been killed by Ardeth Bay's cat. And the memory of the cat as being this fluffy white, uh, you know, uh, like domestic long hair. <laughs> you know, it's, that's like the least Egyptian looking cat I can imagine. That's, that was probably like Carl Lemley's cat. <laughs> God, and, but, then, but then you see this cat in like the next scene, you, you see Imhotep and it's just, it's this just sitting there and it's <laughs> looking, just really just chilling. Like it doesn't even have an intense stare on its face. It looks like they picked a cat up. Out of the, from the street and was like, okay, you are dubbed the cat. <laughs> friend, friend, this, this is Lemley. My cat's going to be a star. <laughs> I, want, I want my cat in this picture. <laughs> um, I also, like, you can tell that they probably spent, like, too long getting that cat to hiss because of the very <laughs> abrupt cut. It's like, not even, like, a full, like, shot. It's just, like, Starts halfway between his thing and ends halfway before it ends. <laughs> yes. Yeah, some best God. boy was like lobbing shoes at it or something. <laughs> God, basically. Um, I thought some of the transitions in this in this movie were amusing. It really felt like um, a made-for-TV mo- movie in that sense. Like, just the, the too long fade to black and, and the... <laughs> And the like very slow moving from scene to scene was, I guess now seen as like kind of cheap and not interesting. But like I I, I don't know enough about um, film production then. Yeah, too long fade to black always makes me think there's like like it's a commercial break they cut out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like they 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 planned in these uh, commercial breaks, which makes me wonder. I guess if um the the version we watched today is. Um, a recut of of the original to uh, to make it fit a uh, that sort of audience. Um, I do know that uh, I don't know if they ended up filming them, but there was a sequence that they cut out of the film where it showed the mummy throughout history. Whoa! Yeah, so like there was like the Crusades and some other time periods, uh, but they they cut them. That would have hey, made that's... so many of his lines make more sense. <laughs> That's where the guy who's Henry Victor, who's credited as the Saxon warrior in the movie, all his scenes no. got cut. <laughs> not appear in this film. <laughs> uh, is there is there more stuff we want to talk about with the mummy? Do we recommend this this film? Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, the mummy's good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's just I a would fun say, movie. I would say, if you're watching movies uh, year from year, starting with 1931, it's definitely a <laughs> high point. <laughs> Uh, I'd say if it's Saturday night and you're looking for a movie to watch, maybe just watch The Exorcist. <laughs> Is there maybe a, a reason uh, why you suggest that movie uh, uh, in particular? Something happened in your life recently? Is that- oh, well, um, no. I'm just very excited. This uh, Exorcist TV show is coming out soon. It was filmed in Chicago. Oh, no, good. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a set in Chicago. Oh, so okay. I'm like excited for it to come out. 
So well, that I've, is got, the devil I've got demons in the mind. <laughs> well, I, I would, um, yeah, I'd recommend The Mummy. I recommended Frankenstein uh, an episode or two back when, uh, and it was like, yeah, I would, anyone can watch Frankenstein because it's, it's like a very modern sort of paced movie. It's fast moving. Uh, anybody can watch that. The Mummy is a little bit slower. Uh, it's a little bit more measured, sort of more uh, hypnotic, you might say. So maybe it's a, uh, it's a good, um, I don't know, Sunday afternoon hangover movie or just something, you know, if you, uh, if you like something that's slower paced, I would recommend it. It's, it's a very well, well-made classic horror film. I too once loved The Mummy. <laughs> I just want to ask, what's the, what do you guys think the moral of this movie is? This is our new bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I already um, shot my wad on that one, so I'm going <laughs> to abstain. Uh, if you gotta resurrect some chick to uh, to make her love you, don't. <laughs> I'd say that if if a chick loves you, maybe don't you don't have to kill her and make her love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sit and stare. How could I venture anywhere and let the centuries fall where they may, but never die. I have loved And so I lost The world above Beyond the moss The days go by A million little nights And days go by And I don't mind Parades go by So many beautiful parades go All right. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's keep it going. So next up, uh, we have White Zombie. Justice, did you want to summarize White Zombie for us? I would very much like to do that. Okay, so White Zombie is a 1932 horror film and is considered to be the first zombie movie, even though the zombies in it bear very little resemblance to the modern living dead, walking dead type zombies that you, y'all probably know. Uh, the film opens with Madeline Short and Neil Parker, a happily engaged couple coming to Haiti for their wedding. When on their way to their lodging, they encounter a funeral in the middle of the road and a mysterious man, played by Bella Lugosi, who's named Murder for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's evil. He, nah, he might. I nah, don't know. Nah. He's also got a legion of brainwashed zombies working in his uh, sugar mill. So that sounds may, completely normal. Maybe for 1932. Madeline and Neil run away from Mr. Murder and to the house of Mr. Charles Beaumont, who's even creepier because uh, he has a thing for Madeline and makes a deal with Murder to make her into a zombie so that he can love her forever. The plot succeeds. Madeline is temporarily killed, pretended, ma- fake killed. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe both. Um, she's kidnapped to Murder's evil castle up on a hill. Full of zombies. Now it's up to Neil and his friend, Dr. Brunner, yet another old guy who already has the entire problem, supernatural problem of the movie figured out before ever anything starts. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, they have to uh, go to rescue Madeline from Charles and murder and break the curse of the white zombie. Thank you. That's good. <sighs> All right. So let's get something out of the way uh, immediately. And that's that. With one or two this exceptions. Film is great. This film is so good. All the acting <laughs> sucks. Okay. So 
now that's out of the way. All the acting fucking sucks, except for Bela Lugosi and a couple uh, bit players. Uh, Madge Bellamy. Madge Bellamy. Great she zombie. Was, she was the, oh yeah, she was an excellent zombie because boy, does she have a voice for silent films. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I want to go on a limb and say, I think Bela Lugosi kind of sucked in this movie. I, uh, I do not dis- I do not agree. I do not agree. Really? I, I kind of got to agree with Alex. I, uh, it, I, just, I, I think I read that there was a lot of tension between uh, Lugosi and the rest of the cast. So um, that wouldn't. So I feel like no one got along. Um, I, I, I just feel like a lot of his delivery is like a step away, just like one step away from his previous role. Like him as uh, as Drac is just sort of like he just talks a little funnier. And like, that's it. <laughs> Uh, you see, my, the difference for me is Dracula is such a, um, uh, for the most part, it, it's a very sort of restrained uh, sort of thing. Like he does the, he relishes stuff, but it's very um, sort of controlled. Uh, in this movie, um, I just love how much of like a smirking bitch he is. Like this, first of all, the script is also not good at all. Uh, though there are no. actually... A lot of things about this movie I like. I'm getting the stuff I hate out first. But uh, just the way Bela Lugosi just loves being evil. I don't know. Uh, I Be- Bela Lugosi, maybe it's just that his main evil thing is that dumb two-hand holding thing. How dare you? <laughs> it's like, it's dumb. He's a choir boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My favorite scene in the movie is he's, he's turned Beaumont into a, a, a zombie, or he's turning Beaumont into a zombie. And they're sitting together at a table, and he's just sort of idly picking at the voodoo doll with the dagger. You know, Beaumont reaches out and grasps, tries to grasp his hand. And he says, you know, there was a time when uh, you wouldn't even deign to shake my hand, but now we understand each other better. And uh, I just fucking love it. I love it, man. I don't know. I don't know. I think just for me, a big letdown of his performance was understanding that uh, his speech pattern in Dracula was kind of just how he talks, but a little bit exaggerated. Oh, absolutely. And his accent is part of his image and part of the reason why he'd be horribly typecast for the rest of his life, uh, because he can never shake it. But yeah, I mean, that's just how he talked, basically. I I totally dislike all of the um, like eye shots. They're ripped straight out of Dracula. The shots oh, yeah. of Bela Lugosi's eyes shadowed or like brilliantly lit. It's straight out of Dracula, and it's like they got Bela Lugosi, so they did the only thing they could think of. Yeah. This movie is a Dracula ripoff. There's no, it's a, it's an extremely low budget independent film. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the performances are so bad is because I don't think anyone in this movie had any respect for it. I think they're just like, ah, they're whatever. The Halperins are paying me and I don't give a shit. Um, they also sh- shot the movie in 11 days. Yes. Yeah, on that's a shoestring budget. Yeah. I'd say they also rented uh, sets and set pieces from other movies. So it, oftentimes you're like, oh, they just cut in a clip of Dracula. Oh, never mind. It's stupider. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I would say that um, despite uh, the generally low quality of acting and the bad script, I think that the uh, direction and cinematography of this film are actually really cool. I think Victor Alperin does a fucking great job uh, doing a lot with not very much. 
There's there's some scenes that stand out. Uh, like the first time we're introduced to the zombies working in murder, which will oh, never yeah. I will never roll my not roll my eyes at. <laughs> uh, working in his uh, sugar mill, you know they're uh, well they're they're, they're working on like uh, basically a, a bucket line carrying sugar cane to the mill, and one of them just falls in. Yeah, that's incredibly chilling. Yeah, no one does anything, and it's it's like a really great scene. It gets the point across in a, a good way. Yeah, and the sound in that scene is spectacular yeah the grinding oh, yeah. of the mill and and actually there's probably oh. too much music in this this there's mm. too much score uh and like the sound choices are weird like it's a low budget independent film which it is like that s- fucking screaming vulture <laughs> oh, i yeah. think that's actually the best part of the movie maybe it's because i didn't know that vulture sounded like screaming people <laughs> um <laughs> But, but like, uh, I think to me, that's like the most effective part of the end of it, because the end of the movie is fucking ridiculous. But like that yeah. vulture is just the most fucking chilling thing. <laughs> and uh, but no, that 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 the sound effects, the foley in um in the sugar uh, mill is uh, just so that's just rumbling, lurching. Uh, I don't, they just didn't do that in movies back then. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the kind of bold artistic choice that somebody could make on accident, maybe. <laughs> I, I would say that this this is like this movie is like if someone wanted to make Dracula and made Vampire by accident. <laughs> oh. I think the uh, the sugar mill scene is interesting because despite not terribly much liking the movie, that is a, that is a great sequence. But I think it's a great sequence at least partially because it's the only scene where like the plight of the the zombies, these people who have been brainwashed and taken over, have their 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 problems are shown at all in the rest of the movie. They're just sort of disposable goons, except for Madeline, who has to be rescued. It's like no, there's fucking dozens of people in the worst situation. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, much like The Mummy, any kind of, uh, or at least most of the things we'd find really sort of troubling uh, are just completely sidestepped. They're like, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna deal with this. But I think that there absolutely is a, an undercurrent in the film of anxieties about forced labor uh, and the exploitation. Um, you know, the, the, I, I'm I'm not going to go so far as to say it's grappling with the uh, American institution of slavery. Um, he says uh, Beaumont goes to see Murder Legendre in his in his that sugar mill scene, and he says, oh, well, "You could use my workers on your plantation. Uh, they don't complain about long hours." Uh, and that's for somebody you know for the, the viewing audience in the Great Depression, uh, who would be very concerned with being economically exploited. That's probably something that uh, would would uh, strike close to home. So in 1932, uh, obviously the movie is set in Haiti. It includes almost no black characters. But uh, just in terms of context, in 1932, the United States uh, was uh, militarily occupying Haiti as it had been since 1915 to protect United States business interests. So um, these kind of like white plantation owners actually would have been pretty prevalent in Haiti at that time. And so you can... Whether or not the movie intends to, it does make these two fucking repulsive slime balls. Um, it's villains, so I don't know. Uh, like I said, I think this is a movie that does a lot of uh, interesting stuff, mostly by accident. <laughs> Let's talk about the end of the movie. Let's talk about that final sequence, man. Sure. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know. Like, Apparently, well, the, the only and... way to break a voodoo curse is to just, like, kill a dude. <laughs> 
like I mean, sort of. These people are like dead already, so like it's like it doesn't make sense that like oh they're I guess just not dead anymore. They're like, just normally alive as if nothing happened. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of it's interesting um, because the there's that long scene of exposition. Uh, which I'd like to talk about in a minute, where he says, well, the, the doctor character says, you know, they look dead, but they could not be dead. They're just being controlled by uh, chemicals or something. And that's like sort of the crux of like what their their plan is to to get what's her name back from being a zombie. Um, but then the rest of the zombies are just like, uh, you're going to walk off a cliff and leave the plot now. <laughs> um, it's like uh, so these were eight living people. Uh, who you just fucking stood there and watched march off a cliff because they weren't important but, to the plot. But they weren't beautiful. So it didn't <laughs> yes. matter. Also, the doctor sounds just like Mel Brooks. <laughs> and I can't take any of his scenes seriously. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Neil and um, Dr. Bruner are just both fucking obnoxious. And the movie's mm-hmm. decision to end on, it's like not even a gag. They don't set it up enough to be a gag. It's like, <laughs> do you have a match? It's like, you, okay, you did that twice in one scene earlier, and well, now I you're doing it again. That whole scene, the first time it happens, it feels like an accident every time. It feels like every time I've been on stage and someone forgot their line, the other yeah. person had to remind them. I, I was actually going to bring that up um, because that scene is, it's a, uh, it's a oneer, as they say. It's, it's one long shot, uninterrupted. Uh, and it does feel like the guy is struggling to remember his lines and he knows <laughs> that he's going to be in deep shit if they have to retake it. Um, <laughs> but it is, uh, yeah, it, it is sort of an interesting scene. Maybe it's stylistically interesting to distract from the fact that uh, it's like a boring scene of exposition and everyone knows it. I don't know. That That's sort of my theory uh, because it is, you know, it, it's it's this... It's an uninterrupted shot. It begins behind Neil's back, and it then his back. and then it it goes back around behind his back to end. Like it's mm. all very purposeful. I'm not sure it, if it really accomplishes any goal, but it's very purposeful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like the the one shotness just made it drag more because it was just like, oh, we're stuck in this room with these people forever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's almost like we're zombies. Well. Uh-huh. I think uh, if there's a scene that sums up my complicated feelings towards this film, it's uh, immediately after um, Madeline become uh, dies or fake dies, and uh, Neil is has become a lush, and he's in a bar, and the entire scene is shot. He's completely alone, and you see everyone moving around him in silhouette uh, as projected shadows, and stylistically, I thought that that's really fucking cool you know it shows his isolation it adds to the sort of dreamlike fairy tale quality of the film but then you have john harron who's just acting atrociously uh, so it's like you have this incredibly cockamamie unbelievable performance in uh like a stylistically very interesting scene and that sort of just that sums up white zombie for me so obviously this is a movie that just really sidesteps any kind of um, question of colonialism, racial prejudice or exploitation. I-, I guess I would say that Clarence Muse, who plays the coach driver in the beginning, gives probably one of the best performances in the film, uh, even yes. though he has about 12 lines. And then, but you know, I was watching this movie 
it was about minute 45 and I was like, you know what? This movie has a lot of problems, but I'm really impressed that they haven't put anyone in blackface. And then at minute 46, <laughs> they introduced the witch doctor, uh, oh. who is just, just terrible. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, terrible and, and pointless. And then uh, Neil starts fainting for some reason that I don't understand. He stumbles through the rest of the movie. I don't know. Anyhow, yeah, so this is the first zombie movie, even though, of course, it's nothing like what we would call a zombie movie. But uh, this is absolutely the film that set the standard of what a zombie movie would be up until 1968. So between 1932 and 1968, basically every zombie movie was ripping this off. And I would, I, I would say <laughs> that partially, at least, uh, the zombies in Night of the Living Dead from 1968 uh, bear some of the... The look is somewhat inspired by the look of the zombies in this movie. The the big wide open eyes, the sort of hunk, sunken hollow lurching around kind of stuff. No, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, this is a, a time period where you see a lot of uh, people who are making films that are going to super, super influence everything for the next, you know, large, large chunk of time. Yeah. This is really one of the births of the birth time periods of what we actually know is horror today. That's still, uh, you know, even to this day, kind of we're thinking about them as we're making what we do now. Yeah. And I think that this is, this film is a, another important landmark in that this is probably at least to my mind, the first cult horror movie. This is a film that's in the public domain, which I think has helped its, its fame uh, tremendously. Um, I think probably just cause somebody didn't renew the license. Um, I don't know the details of why it's in the public domain so well. Um, but this is any uh, like box set you get of public domain horror movies for $12.99 and you get 100 of them on 12 DVDs uh, <laughs> at, at whatever, Walmart, will have this movie on it. And then they'll just like say, Bella Lugosi's in the, this movie, come check it out. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, Basically. But uh, many, many noteworthy horror films are cult movies. They are movies that are do not have a lot of general audience appeal. Maybe they have a lot of flaws. Uh, maybe they're bad, uh, but you know there's something in them that people connect to, uh, and and those sort of genre fans sort of keep interest in them alive. And I think this is probably the earliest example of a movie that this is not a classic film, you know, uh, <laughs> not at all in the way that Dracula, or Frankenstein, or The Mummy is. Uh, but it's a, a movie that was influential and that people keep coming back to for one reason or another. Um, so I, that, that's my thesis. I think it is the first cult horror film. Is that the moral of the story for you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, I guess. I don't know. Oh, uh, let's, let's talk about queer subtext for a second. Um, <laughs> oh, my no. favorite type of subtext. So something that is also alighted in this film is any kind of sexuality. So like they never really talk about what exactly uh, a zombified Madeline would do besides play the piano. Uh, it's <laughs> not mentioned. Nobody's talking about it. Thank God. Except on the poster <laughs> where he, where the poster clearly is alluding to this, uh, you know, with these zombie eyes, he rendered her powerless with this zombie grip. He made her perform his every desire. Uh, and that's very typical Ooh. of, uh, oh, that's right. of uh, sort of the, the, sensationalistic advertising of the pre-code uh, Hollywood era. They don't talk about it in the movie, but one line made me pause where Beaumont is having 
sort of second thoughts, and he asks Murder Legendre to unzombify Madeline. He says no, and he says, I have other plans for her, and I have other plans for you. <laughs> uh, and this is right before he turns him into a zombie. It's like, yeah, man, what are yeah, your other also, plans for him? He also says, like, oh, I've become fond of you. <laughs> exactly. Which is uh, which is interesting, and and obviously they're ripping off the Dracula Renfield uh, relationship, which uh, I believe we've already thoroughly established is highly gay. Gay as fuck. So yeah, I just wanted to bring I wanted to bring that up. I couldn't let that let that lie. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate that. Well, you know, I'm I have your interests at heart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about? I found one interesting side note in a little bit of research. Apparently, uh, Madge Bellamy who mm -hmm. played the female lead, uh, was arrested in the early 1940s for uh, shooting at her former lover twice with a 32 caliber revolver. Huh. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, cool. apparently she had issues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, um, Robert Fraser, or Fraser, who plays Beaumont in uh, White Zombie, uh, born in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts, my, oh, no. my hometown. Oh, how about so. that? So that's the that's the talent pool coming out of Worcester. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> him, him and Dennis Leary. Yeah. So uh, what's what's the moral for the story? Nobody likes destination weddings. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, mine is uh, don't trust grown up choir boys. <laughs> <laughs> if a man tells you his hypnotism powder can be delivered by flour or via wine, and you use it by flour, and then he offers you wine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, gang, uh, I think I know the answer from almost all of you, but would you recommend White Zombie? Nah. No. Maybe nah. if I was really drunk? No. Nah, yeah. <laughs> I would recommend it to a serious horror film fan, but otherwise I would not recommend it. You can't say that about, like, literally every movie. Like, <laughs> well, obviously, and, like, that's the fucking reason we're doing this podcast. <laughs> if you're uh, all those people. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 well, let me, let me differentiate that from what I said about fucking Dracula or whatever. Uh, Dracula's like, that's, you know, it, it's a movie that's important. That's an important movie. So, like, I would recommend that to all kinds of weird obsessives. White Zombie, I would only recommend to one kind of weird obsessive. Uh, I guess two, because there's Rob Zombie fans as well. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Fuck off. Um, my opinions are fine. Uh, well, any closing remarks, guys? I'm still a ghost. Ooh. I'm glad that's still true. Uh, well, thanks, folks. Uh, you know, our listeners out there in podcast land. Uh, I hope, Christ, by this time, there are two of you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, what I are guess. we watching next week, Thad? Oh, yeah. Um, so next week, I think we're going to move on to 1933. And there's two pretty big movies from that year, one of them being King Kong and one of them being The Invisible Man. So how about uh, we watch those? That sounds great. Fantastic. Yeah, let's do it. I'm in. <laughs> that's, that's good. I'm glad I still have you on board. I haven't <laughs> driven you off yet. Yeah, I haven't seen, I've uh, seen uh, modern King Kong, but not the uh, classic. So well, that's... no classics. <laughs> Now's your chance, folks. Um, <laughs> the classic one is uh, excellent. Are you guys uh, just a little racist? Um, um. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave that until next week. So thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, and uh, we'll see you all soon. See you next week. Say goodbye, folks. Goodbye, Bye, folks. folks. Bye, <laughs> Gandhi. Bye. Zombie, oh, zombie. Zombie, oh, zombie. 
zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, no go go unless you tell him to go. Zombie, zombie, no go stop unless you tell him to stop. Zombie, zombie, no go turn unless you tell him to turn. Zombie, zombie, no go think unless you tell him to think. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, oh zombie. Zombie, no go go unless you tell him to go. Unless you tell him to stop. Zombie, zombie, not go turn unless you tell him to turn. Zombie, zombie, not go think unless you tell him to think. Zombie, zombie, oh. 